Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show, where ordinary heroes tell extraordinary stories during unique and never-been-heard-before conversations with your host, Hillary Arno Burns. Hillary's unique listening and way of asking questions results in conversations that aren't usually talked about, so you can create the life that you really want but are afraid you can't really have. We are demonstrating the greatness in the human spirit and creating a world where we all reclaim our birthright of joy, happiness, purpose, and passion. Now, here's your host, Hilary Arno Burns. Welcome to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And today, well, we have Mary Allen, who's a writer, author, and a writing coach. And as always, this show is about what people don't talk about and inspiring you in case you're going through something that one of our guests have been through and have gone through the adversity and come on, come out the other side. So this will be a very interesting conversation with Mary. I'm excited to have her. And welcome, Mary. Thank you, Hillary. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here, too. <laughs> so let's see. I just finished reading one of Mary's books. It's called The Deep Limitless Air by Mary, a memoir in pieces. So it's a, it's a bunch of essays. So I have a head start on all the audience because I know something more about her life. It's very, very interesting. So we decided to start today with... Um, her mother, Mary's mother happened to have, you could tell me if I'm saying it wrong, postpartum, you call it depression when, when Mary was born, right? Yeah. So let's talk about that and how that affected you. And maybe, you know, there's other mothers out there that are going through that, that maybe this could be helpful for, or children. Or other daughters of mothers. Yes. So I, I, I think nowadays it's called maternal mental illness. And, um, I, my mother might have had a variation on postpartum depression, which is postpartum psychosis. So I know that she was very, very mentally ill after I was born directly after I was born. And, um, and how Mary, how did that, like, what does that actually look like on the court? Like, well, you said you were scared of your mom. Like, what did she do? What, well, did she yell at you? There, I was a baby, so it's a little right. bit hard for me to remember, but I do know what my father told me. And I kind of dimly remember some of it because I've done a lot of work getting back to those pre-verbal memories. There was a lot of screaming and banging and scary stuff. There was um, not... Uh, mothers that have postpartum tend to not bond with the baby that they just had. Um, Sometimes they will prefer another child or they'll try to protect the other children from the baby. They project a lot of, as far as I know, I mean, I've read about it, but I'm not an expert. Um, I do know that my father told me that my mother made him put me out on the cold sun porch in the winter so that my crying would not wake up my sister who was two years older than I was. And um, there was just a lot of uh, hard, scary stuff that happened at that time. And when you say scary, is it 
um, like it was like, do you remember it or do you remember what your father told well, you? Well, what I know yeah. is that I was always terrified of my mother from the earliest age I can remember. I never had the kind of relationship with my mother that other people have with their mothers, or at least you hear about other people having, I was a deathly afraid of my mother. I did not feel liked or loved by her and she didn't do anything to help me feel liked or loved. And, um, she, uh, went to the psych ward when I was, um, about, I think about a year old and, you know, there were stories from my father, um, for example, he said that once he was in the garden and he heard my sister and I screaming in the house and he came up and my mother had us in the bathtub and then she went to the telephone and called her psychiatrist and said, there is a voice in my head and it's telling me to kill my children. So stuff like that. You know, I, I, I hesitate to even report these things because they sound so sort of over the top. But, you know, sometimes women that have that do actually kill their children and they are mentally ill. That's what it is. It's not, they're not monsters. They are just really right, sick. Right. And my mother, I think was really sick and it completely um, affected my life, my whole life. Because something I realized recently is that when you're an infant, your mother reflects you back. She looks at you with love and you learn to be seen by her and I didn't have that. So it's that has affected me in this interesting way that I only recently realized, which is that I cannot see myself and nobody can really see themselves, but I can't see myself in any normal sort of way. So my mother was in put, she went to the psych ward. My father tried to find babysitters for me and my sister. He couldn't. And we ended up living with a foster family during the weekdays. And then my father took us home on the weekends when we were really little. And was that your neighbor that you ended they up lived with? down the street? My father didn't know them. He found them through the church. He himself was not really a religious person, but it was a tiny little town in rural New England in Western Massachusetts. He found them through the church. They were very kind and good people. And um, my sister and I lived with them for couple of years at least while my mother was in the psych ward and um it's sort of a long story but eventually she came back home to live they just plucked us out of this safe place and and put us back in the house with her and my father they being her and my father and I was so scared of my mother that I ran away and hid uh under a tree when I was three years old or something in the woods they couldn't find me I was so scared of my mother. And at that point, my father called this family and asked them if I could go back and live with them. And um, they said, yes. So I ended up living with this family that was not my family, was not even an official foster family till I was 18 <laughs> years wow. But I spent weekends often with my parents and my mother, who probably also had maybe borderline personality disorder, um, I hate saying this. It sounds like I'm blaming her. I'm really not, but that's just what it was. She got, she really got, was very, very angry that I wanted to live with this family. So that just created a cycle where I was more and more afraid of her and all that. 
So that was my childhood. And um, so was the fear like, I know you were describing in the book, it was like, um, I mean, obviously fear is not rational, but was it like afraid of her yelling, afraid of her doing that or just, well, just, she didn't, it, or just like, yeah, it was very visceral. It was very body you know, it was because yeah. it was based in pre-verbal stuff where you don't, you know, you're not thinking things or learning lessons or being told that you need to do something different. It was all pre-verbal stuff. So it was like really powerful in your body, in my body, adrenaline, very, very powerful adrenaline. Like I say, like a lion rushing towards you in the jungle or, you know, something like that. That's what it felt like. And I, and it was always like that. I was afraid of her for her, you know, until she died really was sad for her. And was your sister too? Did your sister have that or she was different? Nobody, my sister wasn't afraid of her in the same way. I, my sister had a troubled relationship with my mother too, but she wasn't afraid of her like I was. Wow. And nobody understood why I was so afraid of her. Even I didn't understand. Took a long time for me to understand. Wow. So, um, now I know we were talking yesterday, uh, about, you know, I always thought postpartum was like after the baby, you have postpartum and then it goes away. But you said not necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily think that's the case. I know that they can treat it. And if somebody gets really good treatment, then it probably, you know, goes away. But my mother didn't get good treatment. I don't think they oh. even knew what was going on with her. And they thought she was schizophrenic. Then they thought she had bipolar um you know, it was before they really understood much of anything in uh, psychiatry at that time. And um, she was given a lot of drugs in the psych ward. She was given shock treatments, I think. And um, she just kind of, her illness just sort of morphed into other illnesses like borderline personality disorder and in alcoholism too. She ultimately started using alcohol to kind of deal with it all. And um, so yeah, it was sad. It was, a she had a hard life. Okay. So, wow. Woo. All right. Ooh. So, so you had that. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. I, I just want to say the way that that affected me, you know, that affected me in all sorts of ways. It yes. Was, and I really have recovered from that. And I would like to talk about that. Recovered implies, you know, you come to an end and I expect to continue recovering from this for the rest of my life. It's like my therapist makes this joke that there's no, nothing in life so hard that a lifetime of therapy can't cure. (laughs) But I, I mean, I've really worked on it and I'm not, I used to just be filled with anxiety and depression and fear and, um, and I, I felt very different from other people because I didn't have a, I didn't, people would talk about their mothers. I couldn't talk about my mother. People would talk about their families. I couldn't talk about my family. You know, I didn't live with my family. I didn't even know why I lived with this other family and stuff like that. So right. well, I have, a, I was thinking about something and I don't know if this is a good question to ask, but you know, some people don't have mothers. Um, 
or they're adopted or something like that. Yeah. And I'm, I, you know, not that it matters, but I'm wondering, like, are they better off? They might be because they don't have all that fear. Do you know what I mean? They have a loss or they have an emptiness, but they don't, you know, and again, it doesn't matter. I don't know why that's coming into my head, but. I felt like I didn't have a mother either because okay. I didn't have the kind of relationship that you would normally have with a mother. And I had many substitute mothers, you know, I would find a substitute mother and then, you know, my, even my sister was a kind of substitute mother for me. And I think that's very normal, but I think, I don't, I think everybody's story is different and yeah, there's no, you know, nothing is worse than or better than anything else. Everybody just, his story is different. And right. Um, it's to me, it's all what you do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But so you didn't like, she didn't hug you or you didn't, I no. mean, did other people hug you? Could you hug other people? Could you be loved by other people? Yeah. I mean, the people that I grew up with, they were very rural New England. They weren't exactly huggers either, but, um, <laughs> Actually, it was my father hugged me. You know, I was lucky. I had a very warm and loving father who I was his favorite. I looking mm. back now, I can see there was some problematic stuff there too because there was um triangulation where it was my father and me against my mother. But it really helped, you know, to have yeah. a father that I was, yeah. I was having I was in an alliance with and Right. And I, he hugged me and um, I felt very loved by him. Hmm. Okay. All right. So then safety. Sorry. It was mostly, I felt safe at the Payson's house. You know, I didn't feel hugged. Right. But I felt safe. And I was safe. always searching for a place where I felt safe. In some ways I still am. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's important. Yeah. So is there anything you would say to other kids who have their mothers with that. I know you wanted to address that because people usually yeah. look at their mothers. Like, what can they do? Yeah. What helped you? Yeah. Well, there's kids and there's adults, you know. Right. I, I think, I don't know what I would say to a kid that was in that situation. Do the best you can. Um, a lot of times in those situations, there's a grandparent or there's somebody else who can fill the gap and take over, but the kids can't really do anything about their own situation. Right. I, um, I think for, uh, I've only met one other person who was a student of mine who had a similar background and she was affected in very similar ways. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things you can do all the sorts of things you do anyway, when you have brought trauma and, and stuff, you can work with your trauma through various kinds of therapies. You can, um, go to a 12 step program or just about anything, you know, to try to work on your own healing. Um, and, and also love the people you're with, you know, like the, the student that I had who had the same situation she had a grandmother who basically took care of her and she mm. felt a lot of guilt around her mother and the fact that she didn't really feel bonded with her mother. So I would say, give your, give yourself a break. If you feel that guilt, mm -hmm. it's not your fault. You know, that's just part of the whole deal. Yeah. And, um, I, 
it's a rough one. It's a tough thing to grow up with. I, I feel really lucky that I am very, I have a lot of perseverance and grit. So I would say marshal your grit and your perseverance and just do what it takes to heal yourself, you know, to get healed in whatever way you can. Yeah. And I would just say, you know, if your mother was on the phone when she had the voice in the bathtub, you're lucky she got on the phone. Yeah, I'm lucky. someone, right? Yeah, totally. And she didn't listen. Yeah, she knew. That give You have to give her credit for that. Yeah. Because there wow. are mothers who kill their children. You know, you hear right. about it. It's horrible. Yeah. So, wow. Okay. All right. So that was your childhood. Anything else about that? Before we, I know you lived at the Payson's, you put yourself in college, yeah. I think we covered childhood. You what? I said, I think we covered my childhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you went to college, and I know... um, I put myself through college. Yeah. So you took loans, or you... Yeah, Uh, well, I actually, um, there was a snafu with it because you had to live at home to live off campus. I couldn't afford to live on campus because I couldn't come up with the money all at once to live, you know, for, to live on in a dorm. So I lived off campus, but I had to lie and say I lived with my parents because that's the only way they would let you do that back then at UMass Amherst. And so I basically just did it all myself. I worked and I had jobs and wow. um, it, it, the tuition wasn't that much back then. And then uh, when I was a junior at the end of my junior year, I wrote a long letter to the uh, financial aid people and telling them what my story was. And they gave me a ton of financial aid for my last year. (laughs) They're like, okay. (laughs) Wow. So you were, you told them what was happening. Wow. Yeah. I told them I had to put myself through. I had to do it. I worked in a grocery store. I think my take home pay was something like $35 a week. I would, how did I do it? I don't know. And what did you study? Did you study writing? It was an English major. It was the only thing I was any good at. And also, I didn't have the time and the energy to do any real work other than read books and write papers. So um, (laughs) So you liked that. You liked books and papers. That's all I did. I learned how to write papers when I was in college, and it has served me well. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And then you got out. I know you had a couple jobs, right? Well, I worked in publishing. I didn't know what to do for, I was sort of flailing around and I got a job at Little Brown and Company, which was in Boston at that time. And I worked in publishing and I lived in Boston for about eight years or something. I was a mess. You know, I was, I felt so alone and I was just a mess. And I would get into these terrible relationships with men, you know, or just awful stuff. And um, this is, I've written about this and you might've read this, but I will say um, I, sometime in the early eighties, uh, I, I had taken another job and I had a phobia of public speaking and a phobia of flying. And I had to fly to New York and give a little sales presentation. And I, at the last minute, I went to a hypnotherapist and that changed everything for me because not only did it make it possible for me to you know, fly to New York and give that speech. But I traveled down into my unconscious. And the next week after I had that appointment, I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And, um, 
And, and so I, I did. And I had worked in publishing for, I don't know how many, eight years or something. And I just went around saying, I'm going to be a writer and nothing short of death will, is going to stop me. And I stuck to that to this day. <laughs> and that was the beginning of everything good in my life was that. Don't you wonder where that came from? Well, it came from some deeper, smarter part of myself, you know, <laughs> that I touched in hypnotherapy. And yeah, but that you, your internal knew that's, that's, yeah. I guess we do know, right? We do know. Well, there was a thing in that particular session where I found in the trance, you know, you would see things mm-hmm. in the trance, like you see things in a dream sort of. And I saw this green box and, there, and it was locked and there was a key beside it in the dirt. And in the green box was every, all the toys in the universe. And I couldn't get in there. I couldn't make the key work and I couldn't open the box. And I think that was my unconscious sort of telling me I felt, I didn't feel like I had access to my own creativity. You know, I didn't have access to what I, what was good in the universe. And oh. I did not get it open during the hip, the therapy session. But at that, I really believe it was that green box and, and that vision of not being able to get into it that made me know that I wanted to be a writer and that that's what I wanted. And, and I had the courage to pursue that. I quit that yeah. job. I quit my last job, the last full-time job I've ever had. And I started working as a freelancer and trying to write. And I've basically been doing that ever since. That was a long time ago. Wow. So, so, okay. So you quit your job and then how did you freelance as a writer? You were writing for other people? Well, my roommate, I had a roommate and she was doing freelance tests write a test question writing or something. So I just started doing that too. And we had, we did that for a while and then that dried up and it was like, Oh, I have no income now. And so, um, uh, but somehow it always worked out. I got some other job, like, I don't know, you know, the book, our bodies ourselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, those, those women were low in Boston and they were doing a book called our bodies ourselves for older women. So they hired me to edit the writing. I, that was a big job. And I just had other jobs. And then I applied to the Iowa Writers Workshop, the famous Iowa Writers Workshop, and I got in and I came out here and I've lived here ever since. Wow. Out here in Iowa City, Iowa. Now, can you, I don't know if it's relevant, but I like the part in the essays where you met the older man and he was a famous writer. And it seemed like, I don't know, in my reading of it, might not have occurred to you, but that he so cared about you that he believed, I don't know, somehow he believed in you. I mean, did any of that rub off to give you the confidence to go to Iowa because he was so famous and so, no? Well, (laughs) in my version, it did. (laughs) I met him because I, when I was working at Little Brown and- It was William L. Shirer. He wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, which was a massive, you know, hugely important book in the 20th yeah. century. And he had written a bunch of other books. And he just kind of took a liking to me. And um, I, at that time when I met him, I was about to start working in another job, the last full-time job I ever had. So I had the nerve to say to him, I want to be a writer. 
I am moving to another job, but I really want to be a writer. And he gave me this advice that was, he said, don't wait too long. And then he told me what to do, like what he does, which is take, put a certain amount of time every day, five days a week, and just use that to work on your writing. And I don't think, I I had some kind of inner mission feeling or something that was what gave me the courage to apply to the writer's workshop and everything else. You know, when I was saying I'm going to be a writer and nothing short of death is going to stop me, that didn't really have to do with him. Right. It had to do with me, you know, I, um, and I just knew in the deepest part of me, that's what I wanted. It's amazing. I, yeah. Yeah. I, it's that resilience grit thing, I think. Uh, so I don't think it had to do with him so much because I was terrified of him. I didn't feel worthy. He really oh. liked me. I was like, oh, God, this all oh, this guy likes me. And oh, he was old, you know, and um, but I, it's one of my fondest memories is that relationship I had with him. I was friends with him until he died at the age of 90. Um, and um, he was really a very, very nice man. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I just, I, you know, I have the image of you like at the lake where you had your bathing suit and you didn't want to be seen. And he just yeah, didn't, didn't want to be seen by him. I was so really hiding inside myself from myself, you know, yeah. from my mother really at that time. And so I wasn't prepared to be seen by him. And he <laughs> wanted to take my picture. And I was like, oh, God, no. And, you know, all of that. Um, so that was part of what I had to, you know, recover from yeah. my childhood. I've, you know, I've spent many years healing that stuff in my childhood. Yeah. Now, so, okay. So the Iowa Writers Workshop. So what, I don't really know, um, but what is that? Is that a school? Was it a, well, just a... Have you heard of MFA programs? An MFA uh, program. Masters of, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of, yeah. you know, they, you get an MFA, which is a master's degree in writing that Iowa Writers Workshop was the very first MFA program in the country and wow. very famous. A, a lot of big name writers have uh, gone there and taught there. Um, um, Flannery O'Connor went there many years ago. If you know who she is, um, John um Irving, am I getting that name right? Anyway, a lot of famous people. Kurt Vonnegut, uh, all these big name authors have gone through the Writers' Workshop or taught at the Writers' Workshop or both Raymond Carver. You know, their houses, where they lived, are all over the town. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people have gone through the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Wow. So that's cool. So how long? Was it like a two-year thing? Or how long? It's a two-year program. And, wow. and I went there in fiction. I didn't know anything about how to write fiction when I got out of there. But um, in 1991, I got out of there in 1986. In 1991, I had this thing happen where I fell in love with this guy and he committed suicide. I knew I had to write about it. I tried writing about it with fiction. It was not working very well. And I had this big aha moment where I realized I could write about it with memoir. And that's how memoir came into my life. And I realized I'm actually a pretty good memoir writer. And I was friends with Joanne Beard, who's a pretty famous nonfiction memoir writer. And we sort of developed ourselves as memoir writers together back then. Now, like ancient history. So I wrote wow. a memoir. 
and it became a book. And here is the book, The Rooms of Heaven. Wow. I want to get that uh, one. <laughs> a huge book advance for it. Now you have the same, like you have the same kind I of know. Story. I didn't even realize that till I held them up together. Wow. So this yeah, is- I want to read that one. So, yeah. No, I think you'd like this one. This one really gets real, Hillary. And, uh, and when I started writing, I, I didn't even know what memoir was called. You know, I didn't even know what it was, but I started writing about myself and they said, well, that's memoir. That's I'm memoir. like, okay, that's then right. that's what I'm writing. <laughs> yeah. Memoir is a great form and it's, yeah. it can be very healing to write memoir. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. So you did that and then you got friends with Joanne and then you met your friend. I don't know if there's anything you want to say about him. You mean the guy who killed himself or? Yeah. Okay. I met him before I met Joanne. I met him in 1991. It's all in this book. I fell okay. madly in love with him. I, in the way, you know, you have sometimes that happens to you in your life. And I, uh, I will never, uh, I will never say anything bad about that or bad about him. And, but he was really to this day, I think, Oh God. And, um, but it turned out that he had a drug and alcohol problem and I was very naive at that time. And I thought he could just stop because he had me and he thought that too. He kept saying, now that I have you, I have something to live for. And he really meant it, but um, you know, it doesn't work that way. And, uh, how long had he been like, like, like you didn't know when you met him or, you know, sober, how long had he been using or yeah. Like, like how old, well, you were, tw- you were 21. So how old was oh, he? No, I wasn't 21 then. That was oh. after I came out to the writer's workshop. It was when I was okay. in Iowa city then. I was, okay. I think I was 30 something, maybe 30 okay. or something. Okay. Anyway, so he wasn't a kid. Okay. No, we were not kids. We were not kids. And, oh, um, okay. you know, he had a, he had been in Vietnam. He always said, oh no, that's not, you know, he would be the first person to disagree that that was the cause of his problems. But I think that's where he picked up his drug habit. And, um, you know, he had fallen in with a crowd that was probably not that good for him. And anyway, uh, so I wrote about it, you know, he killed himself. And um, I, after he died, I was like really shattered. And I went down the road called Life After Death. I got really involved in where did he go? And I basically, uh, my joke is I brought a dead guy back to life. I kind of did. <laughs> I did. I use automatic writing, which is uh, this um, metaphysical practice, you know, old metaphysical practice where you hold a pen and you get some writing. And so, you know, I did that. I talked to him for a long time. And um, eventually I got locked up in the psych ward. So um, that's, really? that's the second part of this book. The first part of this book is, you know, the relationship and dealing with him and dealing with his drug stuff. And then the second part is that, you know, me and him in the afterlife and um, ending in the psych ward. And then the third part is how I came back from all that. So how long were you in the psych? I keep, uh, uh, you hear those dogs? They're yeah, really that's not bothering me at all. So. Okay, right. That's um, why I'm I was there for mm, 
seven days or something, maybe 11 days. I can't remember. Oh, okay. It wasn't like three years. Okay. No, it was really an amazing experience for me because for the first time I understood my mother and what she went through with her mental illness and um, how you can get in there and get on this treadmill that you can't get off. That did not happen to me, but it can happen. You know, they give you drugs. The drugs themselves can make you crazy and, you know, uh, affect you in all sorts of ways. And, um, you know, that was a long time ago that things might be different now. Nowadays, they, I don't think they hold people in the psych ward like that because the insurance won't cover it. But back then, they were, they were just dying to get people in there. And um, so anyway. Maybe wow. I'll- All right. I have some more questions, but let's go to our commercial break. Okay. And then when we come back, I want to find out how, like, how did you get in there and how did you come out? Yeah, okay, great. So we don't, and then, and then we'll keep going, but all right. Thank you. I will, yes. So we're going to go to our commercial break and then we will be back. Has social-emotional learning become just one more thing on your teacher's plates? Do teachers and students both find it boring and ineffective? Then bring Kikori to your school. Kikori transforms classrooms through experiential SEL activities that help students play, reflect, connect, and grow. Even better, students say it's more fun than recess. Schedule a no-obligation conversation at kikoriapp.com slash bringkikori. K-I-K-O-R-I. Do you ever feel like you can't say what you really want to say? Or that you're stuck or in a holding pattern in your relationships, career, personal life, or finances? Are there things you want in life that you've given up on? Are you resigned that this is as good as it's going to get? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Hillary Burns, host of the Getting Real with Hillary show, has the solution you need. Hillary is a published author of three books and has a program called The Getting Real Process. This process frees you from what is holding you back, allowing you to create a life you love. Don't believe it? It is hard to believe that it could work, isn't it? The proof is that hundreds of Hillary's clients have used The Getting Real Process and are now free to create whatever they want in relationships, career, finances, enjoying life, or just loving themselves more. So go to realtalkwithhillary.com and order Hillary's book, Real Talk, and set up a conversation. Okay, welcome back to the Getting Real with Hillary show. And thanks again to our sponsor, KokoriApp.com. If you want to bring experiential social emotional learning to your schools, go to KokoriApp.com. It's experiential. It's a way to teach your children how to be safe and connect and just be a part of the social scene. And, you know, after COVID, Sometimes uh, that's a little bit missing. So again, kakoriapp.com, and you can ask for Haley. And 
I want to welcome back Mary Allen. Here we are. Okay. So how did you get into the psych ward? Did you tell someone you were yes, talking I did. to your I, boyfriend? <laughs> yes, I did. I, <laughs> so that's how I think. I, th you know, there's this question, was I really crazy or was it just, you know, messing around with that stuff? And uh, well, I think one of the evidences that I was really crazy was that I did tell somebody, I told my next door neighbor, um, she had been kind of my friend. Um, and she was over at her apartment right next door to me and um, with some friends. And I went over there and told them stuff. And before I knew it, <laughs> I was being carried into the psych ward. Because in Iowa, you can um, be committed. Only two people have to uh, commit, have to agree that you need to be committed. So they brought, they talked me into going to the psych ward. I, I resisted all along. I was like, no, I'm not doing that. But, oh, I, I went up there with them, and then I was out in the courtyard, and this doctor came out, and the doctor kept trying to talk me into going into the psych ward, and I kept saying, nope, my mother went in, and she never came out, and I'm not going in there, and eventually they carried me in on a chair, <laughs> and it was not pretty. I think I, I seem to recall that I shrieked a big, loud shriek when they picked me up and carried me in on the chair. And um, all of this I have documented in this memoir because yeah. it's a little embarrassing for me now, but it was a long time ago. And um, how did you get out? Or I guess it's in the book, but. I, the way I got out was eventually, and first I, I kept telling everybody that I wasn't crazy and, and everything. And um, I, the very first night I was in there was really terrible because I was still, you know, thinking that I was talking to a dead guy and all that. And um, I remember I had this really dramatic dream, which was that um, all of the papers that I had written, you know, done the automatic writing with, they all got torn up and they came floating down like snow. And then I saw in the distance two figures swinging his body, the the guy that I, you know, the dead guy that I had been talking to swinging his body and throwing it in the fire. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and, then, and then in the morning I realized like, that's it. I've gotten myself into this place and I, I am stuck here. And, um, the doctor, the psychiatrist visited me the next day and decided that I was bipolar. I was glad cause I thought they might say that I was schizophrenic. And they made me take lithium. And um, I resisted for a while. I told everybody that I wasn't really crazy. And then I just decided to just go along with it all. It's like, okay, I'll do whatever you want. And I, um, and that's when they let me out. And, um, and then I kept following up after that. And they kept thinking, saying that I had bipolar and I was going to have an episode. And I kept saying, well... Uh, I got off lithium myself because they wouldn't let me get off. And this is a terrible, nobody bipolar should hear this, but I probably, I was not bipolar, but they wanted me to take lithium for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to do that. So anyway, I got off by myself. I never had another episode. Eventually a psychiatrist somewhere else said, well, we think you just had, there was some other diagnosis for, you know, when you go crazy, when you have something really 
terrible happened to you. It's temporary. But but you didn't have an episode. Your your neighbor ratted you out, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've talked to dead people. That's like like now. It's like no. I remember once admitting it in a course because they said, "Tell us something that nobody yeah. knows about you." So I said, "Well, I talked to dead people," and yeah. I thought they were all going to think I was crazy. Well, about five people came up to me and said, "Oh, I do too." Right. Yeah. Totally cool now. <laughs> I know, and it so, was. But what the thing is, I um. I talked to my boyfriend sitting at that table for a long time. And at first I think it was really genuine, but I always say you can't really listen to the silent voices of the invisible dead day in and day out. Um, <laughs> indefinitely without something getting in there, you right. know? And I, I remember like one day for a while, it was somebody else started talking to me, you know, somebody else. And then, oh. and that was the beginning of a whole bunch of really not good stuff. So, okay. It wasn't just talking to dead people. It was really talking to dead people in a very whatever way. So, and then, you know, I, sometimes I think uh, I, even the dead people were trying to keep me from doing that, you know, that eventually it was just like, no, you're not doing that anymore. And um, when I was in the psych ward, uh, I had this piece of paper and a pencil and I tried to do the writing and I got this little message that said no writing. And I never never got it again. And then one time, a couple of years after that, I was sitting on my couch and I remember I had a newspaper and a pencil. I thought, I think I'll just see if I can do it. And it drew a little picture of a pig, <laughs> but it was like, I've never been able to do it again. And I don't want to do it again. I mean that I never want to go there again. That's for sure. But wow. I feel the funny thing is I, I mean, I still, totally believe in the afterlife and I feel his presence, the dead guy, every, he, he comes to me every now and then. And, and I, it's unmistakable. I feel him around me. And one time, you know, and then he says something like, um, one time I was at a writing colony a long time ago when I first started writing about him and all this, and I was writing this poem about his death. And I was like, how can I get it in there? Or what happened? And I, this voice popped into my head and it said, You've got a regular little industry going. <laughs> and I knew that was him. That was exactly the sort of thing he would say. Wow. So, I mean, my life is very much um, all mingled up with stuff like that. You know, dead guys and <laughs> all kinds of stuff like that in a very yeah. nice way now. And I'm writing, I'm, I just finished a novel and it's set in the afterlife. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. So we got, let's see, we got about 10 minutes left. I know we've covered a lot of your childhood, but, you know, since then, you know, you've been writing, you've been coaching, you know, it's good to know you've made a living as a writer, as a writing coach. Um, Anything you want to say about that um, to, you know, there's a lot of people who want to write, you know, my thinking would be, well, you can't make a living at it. So you got to have another job, but you didn't. Anything yeah. about that? Well, it took a long time for me. I, I got at one point I got a lot. I got a big fat advance for this book. So I lived on that for seven years. And um, and then when that ran out, I had no idea how to make a living. And uh, I got, it was pretty scary for a while. And then I 
eventually this coaching business sort of grew up in my life. It took me a while to figure out how to live on it. And, um, but now it works pretty well as a way to make a living. And, um, you know, I think for writers, for anybody who wants to write, that is the challenge is how do you support yourself while you're doing it? Because very few writers actually make a living with their writing. And um, I feel grateful and lucky that I have this coaching thing. And I part of me feels a little bit bad because now people are paying me <laughs> to do something that they can't really make money with. But nevertheless, a lot of people feel this need to write and this they feel a call to do it and uh just like i did and they don't really know exactly how to do it or they don't uh you know they don't have the confidence to do it and i help people like that i help other people i mean i help people who have book contracts and everything but um how do they get book contracts <laughs> well <laughs> that's another story you know but they're like famous for something and someone said a contract nowadays but yeah um you know sometimes people can do it i don't have that many clients who have book contracts yeah. but yeah but so no but i think you know i when i i when i wrote my first book i wrote it and then i thought i was going to publish it and then someone someone said well you might want to take a writing class. And I was like, no, I'm not going to waste money on that. And then I, I kept looking for people, you know, to publish it. And then when the second person said here, it was the same person's name, you know, why don't you call her up and you can go to her class. And I did, I went to her class for like five years and that's where it was kind of like yours. It was like essays. Each chapter was an essay that I would write and then we would read it and they would give feedback and that, you know, I think what you're doing is very valuable. It gave me the confidence to keep going because yeah. you know, if I had read it out loud and they had said, okay, this is really bad. You really should keep going. I probably wouldn't have, but they were like, no, this is a good, you need to write this. And so that's how okay. I wrote my first book, but it took seven years to rewrite. Yeah. It takes a but, long time, but I was always hiring people to help me. So I think, I think you're providing a valuable service and that's why we have day jobs. So we can pay people like you, you know? <laughs> right. Because it's not, it's something, if you really have a deep longing to do it, then for, I think the worst thing would be to come to the end of your life and not have done the thing that you had a deep longing to do. Right. And it's, I know there are many deep and profound gifts from writing and almost none of them have to do with getting published. And right. I, um, that is my, my heart is really, you know, that's such a big part of my life. And it has been ever since that moment when I said, I'm going to be a writer and nothing short of death will stop me. And wow. I, um, if it's writing is healing, there's, you know, I love to say, if you want to get over something, write a book about it. Cause you'll be so sick of it by the time you're done. You'll never think, want to think about it again. That worked sure. for me. It worked for me with this, with this <laughs> as a, yeah, I'm a very healthy suicide survivor um, <laughs> compared to many other suicide survivors. So. Yeah, it's true. Well, that was mine. My seven years of writing about why my marriage didn't work. Definitely. Yeah. Got me 
complete and I got no problems. I'm not a victim. I see my part yep. in it and I'm just good to go, you know, but yep. it took a while to be responsible for my part, you know, yep. but through the writing, you know, they were like, well, what about you? It's like, right. what, about, what do you mean? What about me? You know, it's his fault, you know, and then you no, get to see not. your part and you come and someone had said, I don't know if you've heard this because I had written it, you know, like while it was happening, they said, you really shouldn't, uh, I don't know if it's write a memoir or publish a memoir or whatever for seven years, like from when it happened. And I was like, nah, but then it took me seven years yeah. to rewrite it. And I was like, I did see it differently by then. I mean, have you ever heard that? No, I've never heard that. I think okay. people, there's always these rules about what you should and shouldn't do. So I started writing about the suicide thing very soon afterwards. And I, um, I published it. No, uh, that didn't, that wasn't true for me, but I think the writing itself gives you the perspective on it. And yeah. um, I have been writing about my childhood uh, for ever since I've been working on writing. And um, I just finished a memoir about that too. And about um, how I healed from it. There's a part two. And wow. um, that's the name of that. Well, I've been calling it Awake in the Dream House for many years, but okay. it doesn't I don't have a publisher for it yet and I think I'm okay. going to change the title. So I I mean um it helped me enormously to do that. Mm -hmm. And if the funny thing was when I started writing that book for in a serious way, I went wait a minute, I don't remember my childhood. <laughs> what am I thinking? I can't do that. But it all came back as I was writing about it. Wow. It's a long time to figure out how to make it interesting, how to write a book about it, how to dramatize it. I just, well, it was really a hard project. Wow. Yeah, but oh, that's amazing. All right. So we just have a few minutes left, Mary. What um, do you want to leave people with? What's your vision for the world? How do they find you? All that good stuff. If anybody wants to find me, they can Google me, Mary Allen. That should take you to my website, maryallenwriter.com. And there is an email address on there for me. Um, and you can email me. Anybody can email me who wants to. Um, I guess my message would be never give up. It's always just we can't let these hard things that happen to us ruin our lives. So we have to pull up our bootstraps and find the healing wherever we can find it. Um, there's a kind of therapy that I've done at length. It's called EMDR, stands for Eye Motion Desensitization Routine. Therapists do it, real therapists do it. And it helps you, uh, it helps people heal from trauma. It has worked with veterans who have PTSD. A lot of, I think we all have our own PTSD in certain ways. I've used EMDR a lot. I've written about it a lot in this new book that I'm about to publish um, or hopefully publish sometime in the next year or so. And um, I would say look into that. That has been hugely helpful for me. And 12-step um, programs, Al-Anon is a great thing to do. It's free. Overeaters Anonymous is a great thing to do. That's free AA. You know, um, I think a lot of us are affected by alcoholism, by somebody else's alcoholism. Al-Anon is a great place to go to work with that. 
again, it doesn't cost anything. There's a lot of meetings on Zoom these days. You meet people who are just like you, have the same challenges, and it gives you a way to work through stuff. And it gives you a community too. I've been, I've done Al-Anon for many, many years. So that's how I've done it. That's how I've worked on myself. And I'm happy now. I really am, you know, and I, through and through. And it's because hmm. I all that work on myself. <clears throat> and what impact would you want to leave on the world? What would you say well, if I, got to, if I had to pick one thing, it would be for the world to understand that um, we are not just bodies and um, we are made of spirit and we go on. You know, when you die, you you leave your body behind, but you go on. And it's not just some weird little piece of you called the soul or something. It's you. There is no death. That's what I would like to leave, I guess. Wow. Well, thank you, Mary. This has been fascinating and um, such a great inspiration you are for, you know, what happened to you and that you didn't quit and that you've used, tried all these different healings and that, you know, your writing has helped you. And I know in your essays, the EMDR sounds fascinating. Um, You know, you keep searching for ways of you know, moving through it and, and being an inspiration to all of us. So thank you so much. And if you need a writing coach, I would recommend Mary. And then you want to hold up your books again. I'll hold up this one. This is her essays, The Deep Limitless Air by Mary oh, Allen. Yep. Available on Amazon. And there's this, The Rooms of Heaven. Yep. This is the hardcover. There is a paperback edition. That's probably what you'll get if you order The Rooms of Heaven um, from Amazon. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, and can we keep an eye out for my, uh, new books, uh, because they will be coming out. And, um, I also have a blog on the psychology today website. So if you Google me, you'll find that you'll find other stuff too. So would you like, would you recommend your book? Obviously you would, but, um, for people who've had losses, suicide, yes, think it would help other people. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the rooms of heaven. I would totally recommend that for people who okay. have, that. and people who have experienced grief. You know, I really get real in that book, and um, I've had people say to me that this book really helps them with grief. And it also, you know, one thing that helped me a lot with my grief was reading up on the afterlife. You know, mm-hmm. no, they people might be gone, but they're not really gone. Um. So yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Hillary. Great well, talk. Yeah, this has been so interesting. Thank you so much. And uh don't forget Mary's books. And maybe we can have you back when your third book is published. I would love that. I would love that so much. <laughs> All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for watching this episode. I started getting real with Hillary when I discovered that I was a people-pleasing pleasant phony and wanted to be more of my real self. We can grow together if you will like the show, subscribe to my channel, and share this episode with your friends and family so that we can have a world that's more real.